Welcome to Investing Insights for the Modern Investor, a quarterly podcast to help you become a better investor so that you can grow and protect your wealth. I cover investment topics including portfolio design, cutting edge investment strategies, risk management, and any topic relevant to creating better long-term investing results. This podcast is a companion to Three Summit Investment Management's quarterly Investing Insight newsletter. For more information about Three Summit Investment Management and to subscribe to Investing Insights, please go to our website at www.threesummit.com. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Investments involve risk. Be sure to first consult with a qualified investment manager or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This podcast is not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. I am Dan Irvine, the founder and principal of Three Summit Investment Management. Thank you for listening. Hello, my friends. I hope you are all enjoying a happy and healthy summer. Today, we're going to talk about SPACs, which is short for special purpose acquisition companies. You've probably heard that SPACs are the newest must-have investment for individual investors. Virgin Galactic, DraftKings, and Nikola, which is appearing more and more like a fraud every day, are some of the hot companies that have recently gone public through SPAC mergers. SPACs have been billed by Wall Street and Silicon Valley financers as democratizing private equity by giving individual investors opportunities to invest in pre-IPO companies. First, if Wall Street says it is democratizing anything, your internal warning lights should immediately start flashing. History shows that democratizing is just a fancy word for needing a bag holder or a sucker to join a deal. Given the extraordinary interest in SPACs, we're going to focus this episode exclusively on the topic. SPACs are incredibly complicated, but I'm going to demystify them and in the process, hopefully help you protect your wealth should you ever consider investing in a SPAC. I think the audience that listens to our podcast is going to find this episode fascinating because as we peel the layers of complexity away, SPACs emerge as one of the more clear illustrations of the disadvantages individual investors face as Wall Street recruits the small investor to shoulder their massive paydays. So let's dig into SPACs. If you are thinking of investing in any complex structured deal and you are wondering who is most likely to bear the greatest risk and costs, it is probably you. The richest people on Wall Street are not necessarily the best investors, but the best deal makers. They are experts at structuring heads I win, tails you lose deals, where the financial success of their investors has little to no bearing on their own financial rewards. Most financial deals that overwhelmingly favor the party that structures and sells them are usually complex by design. Think of complexity in this instance as a feature, not a bug. Special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs, are extremely complex and have historically been highly efficient wealth destroyers for retail investors. 
Complexity obfuscates the risks and costs investors will bear, which is advantageous for any sponsor selling a SPAC offering and potentially detrimental for would-be investors that have not done their research. SPACs once occupied an obscure corner of the market, but over the last two years, they have entered the mainstream and exploded in popularity among retail investors. Last year, SPACs made up about 50% of all IPO or initial public offering activity in the market. That is an amazing number. To further illustrate the growth in SPAC offerings, in 2009, there was one SPAC IPO. And so far, in the first seven months of 2021, there have been 389 SPAC IPOs. I've got a great chart that shows the growth in SPAC offerings through the years, and that is in the show notes if you'd like to see that. SPACs are Exhibit A in information asymmetry between Wall Street and retail investors. To level the information playing field, we're going to explain what SPACs are, how they work, and why an investor considering buying a SPAC shares should proceed with extreme caution. So first, what is a SPAC? A SPAC is a publicly traded shell company incorporated by a sponsor. A sponsor is usually a well-known investor, former CEO, or a private equity firm. The shell company raises capital through an initial public offering or an IPO with the purpose of merging with a yet-to-be-identified private company, thereby taking the private company public. So an easy way to look at this is essentially a private company can outsource the initial public offering to a financial structure like a SPAC. Investors in a SPAC IPO do not know what they are buying when they initially invest, which is why SPACs are often referred to as blank check companies. Once the sponsor has registered a corporation and then raised assets by taking the shell company public in an IPO, they have two years to identify a private target company and complete a merger. So let's summarize. A well-known rich person offers to sell you shares in a shell company so they can try to locate and merge with a yet-to-be-identified private company within the next two years. That is a SPAC in a nutshell. Sounds pretty good, right? So let's find out. To further our discussion on SPACs, it is important to have a general understanding of how a SPAC transaction works. There are three main stages in the life of a SPAC. Phase one is incorporation and IPO. In this stage, the SPAC sponsor creates a shell corporation and takes the shell company public through a unit offering, selling each share at $10, with usually one warrant attached to sweeten the deal and compensate initial investors for parking their money for as long as two years. A warrant is simply an option to buy common stock in the post-merger company at a specified exercise price. Each warrant is generally convertible to between a half and one share 
at an exercise price of $11.50 post-merger. Warrants can therefore become very valuable if the share price of the post-merger company increases in value after the merger. Warrants become important later, so we will revisit them. Finally, the capital raised through the SPAC IPO is put in a trust and invested in safe securities like treasury bonds. As compensation for setting up the SPAC and searching for a company to merge with, the sponsor purchases 20% of the total equity raised by the SPAC for a de minimis amount, usually around $25,000. The result is that the sponsor gets 20% ownership in the SPAC for virtually free. Phase two is searching for the merger target and performing due diligence. Once the IPO is complete, the second stage begins. The sponsor looks for a private company to merge with before the two-year deadline to complete the merger comes to an end. The sponsor must both identify a company and complete a merger within two years or the SPAC will be unwound and the money raised in the SPAC IPO will be returned to investors usually at the $10 initial offering price plus any accrued interest from the securities held in the trust. When the sponsor has identified a merger target, they perform their due diligence on the target company and negotiate the terms of the merger. When a non-binding purchase agreement has been drawn up, the sponsor will publicly announce the merger. If the cash to be paid in the merger exceeds the amount of cash in the SPAC trust, then the sponsor will raise more money through a transaction called a private investment in a public equity, which is also known as a pipe transaction. A pipe transaction sells additional shares of the SPAC to a group of accredited investors, usually institutional investors, hedge funds, and mutual funds. Investors in the pipe are usually given more favorable terms, including the opportunity to buy shares at a discount to the IPO price and access to material non-public information about the merger details. Finally, after shareholders are given details of the merger, they may decide to hold their shares through the merger or put them back to the SPAC, requiring the SPAC to repurchase their shares from them. Importantly, investors in the IPO are permitted to keep any rights and warrants they received, even if they sell their shares back to the SPAC. Finally, there's phase three, merger and de-SPACing. The last phase is to close on the merger and merge the SPAC with the target company. The target company issues shares to the SPAC investors in exchange for the money raised by the SPAC. The SPAC becomes a normal operating company with the financial and business history of the target company. The target company is now a public company with newly raised capital that was received in the merger. And the SPAC shareholders become minority shareholders in the target company. The final ownership percentage the SPAC shareholders have in the newly public company depends on how much money was delivered during the merger. 
Now, I told you that SPAC transactions are fairly complex. So I know I just gave you a lot of information, but I think the best way to understand structured finance deals like a SPAC deal is to examine them from the vantage point of the parties involved. Investing is not a charitable pursuit. So to understand complex financial deals, you have to understand what each party stands to gain or lose in the deal. There are three main parties in a SPAC deal, the sponsor, the investors in the SPAC, and the target private company and its shareholders that will ultimately merge with the SPAC. So let's take the sponsor first. How does the sponsor stand to benefit from managing a SPAC? Well, that's easy. Money. Potentially a lot of money with very little of their own capital at risk. If you recall, after the IPO, the SPAC sponsor receives what's called a promote and retains 20% ownership of the SPAC for nearly free. As long as the sponsor successfully completes a merger, regardless of the quality of the target company or its long-term prospects of success, the sponsor will earn a windfall by owning a substantial share of the newly public target company. Even if the price of the newly public target company falls significantly after the merger, which is common, the sponsor who received their shares for nearly free will have substantial gains. The sponsor's role highlights the biggest problem with SPACs. The sponsor's interests do not align with the interests of SPAC investors. The only way for the sponsor to have an economic loss is to fail to complete a merger within the allotted time. Therefore, the incentive for the sponsor to complete complete a deal regardless of the quality of the target company or fail to negotiate favorable terms for the SPAC investors is huge. Even the worst merger deal imaginable will likely reap millions or even tens of millions of dollars in rewards for the sponsor. Okay, so we know what's in it for the sponsor. How about the target company? Private companies needing to raise capital may be interested in merging with a SPAC for a variety of reasons. One advantage of merging with a SPAC instead of having a traditional IPO is that a SPAC merger may be quicker than an IPO, therefore getting needed capital to a company faster and with less hoops to jump through. Traditional IPOs require companies to convince perhaps hundreds of sophisticated investors that their business has strong future prospects and that the company is being valued correctly prior to the IPO. Merging with a SPAC requires companies to convince only one investor, the sponsor, of their future business prospects. And given the massive incentives that accrue to the sponsor if a merger is completed, companies needing capital have a very receptive audience. A disadvantage to a private company looking to merge with a SPAC is that the amount of money that will ultimately be delivered in the merger with a SPAC is uncertain. Investors, as I explained in the trans when I explained the transaction, 
have the option to put their shares back to the sponsor prior to the merger, which leads to uncertainty in the amount of capital that will ultimately be delivered to the target company after the merger. SPAC investors need to be aware that a company looking to raise capital and go public through a SPAC merger may be doing so because they do not have any other options. A company's options for raising capital can be limited if the business is complex, has poor financial performance, limited operating and financial history, or poor growth prospects. Investors are trusting the sponsor to do the due diligence and negotiate a fair valuation. However, as we have covered, their financial incentives are more aligned with the target company than those of the SPAC investors. Okay, so let's get around to the important party. Let's look at what's in it for the SPAC investor. There are two groups of SPAC investors the initial SPAC IPO investors, and investors who buy shares of a SPAC in the open market after the IPO. Like any IPO, the initial investors are usually institutions and hedge funds. This is important because SPACs are often described as democratizing private equity by giving individual investors the opportunity to participate in pre-IPO deals that they generally would be excluded from participating in. While this is true regarding the eventual merger of the SPAC with a target private company, it is not true in regard to the IPO of the SPAC itself. The reality is that individual investors do not generally get an allocation to SPAC IPO shares, but can only buy them in the open market post-IPO which puts them at a great disadvantage to institutional IPO investors. The reason that they're at such a disadvantage is that each IPO share comes with a free detachable warrant that the IPO investor gets to keep even if they redeem or sell their shares prior to the merger. Shares purchased in the open market do not have the warrant attached. Okay. For the individual investors out there, let's get to the heart of the issue with SPACs and why you should probably play in a different sandbox. Exclusions from the SPAC IPO shares and the attached rights and warrants, information disadvantages, and massive hidden expenses make any investor buying SPAC shares in the open market the designated bag holder or the sucker at the poker table. Investors that hold their SPAC shares through the merger are the ones subsidizing the high cost of the SPAC IPO, which benefits the target company, and pays the outrageous promote costs in the form of 20% of the SPAC ownership that the sponsor receives for virtually free. Now, it might surprise you that according to a study of SPAC transactions between January 2019 and June of 2020, the average return for a SPAC IPO investor, so these are the institutional investors that get access to the IPO shares, their average return was 11.6. And the mean return of a SPAC 12 months after a merger was a negative 34.9%. So individual investors 
that buy SPAC shares in the open market and hold them for a year after the merger would have, on average, lost at least a third of their money, assuming they bought the SPAC shares at the IPO price of $10 and did not pay a premium to the IPO price, which would have made their return even lower. Why is it that most hedge funds and institutional investors in SPAC IPOs do so well and shoulder minimal to no risk? And SPAC investors, the investors that usually individual investors that buy the shares in the open market and hold their shares through the merger, shoulder almost all the risk and do so poorly. It is because of the inherent advantage that IPO investors gain from the attached rights and warrants, their information advantage, and because of shareholder dilution that is built into the SPAC structure. So let's first break that down and talk about rights and warrants. The vast majority of SPAC IPO shares are sold to a contingent of hedge funds that specialize in what's called SPAC arbitrage. Here's how it works. They buy shares in SPACs at the IPO and receive the, sh the shares at the unit price, which is $10, but they also get the attached rights and warrants. Now here's the catch. These investors have no plans to stick around for the eventual merger. Because of their advantage of buying shares of the SPAC at the IPO price of $10 and receiving the attached rights and warrants that they get to keep even if they sell or redeem their SPAC shares, their strategy is to earn essentially risk-free double-digit returns. So here's how the strategy works. After the SPAC IPO, if shares of the SPAC traded a premium to the IPO price of $10, IPO investors can simply divest their shares by selling their shares in the open market to individual investors for a gain while keeping their free rights and warrants. If they do not sell their shares in the open market, then when a merger is announced, they can put their shares back to the SPAC prior to the merger and receive their initial investment plus interest and still hold on to their rights and warrants. Once the merger has been completed, if the price of the newly public company stock rises over time, they can exercise their rights and warrants and receive discounted shares of the public company for a risk-free gain. Essentially what happens and why the return prospects are so different for individual investors buying shares in the open market and institutions who receive them at the IPO is that the little guy gets diluted. So let's look at what happens to investors that do not have the rights or warrants and bought their shares of SPACs of the SPAC pre-merger and hold them through the merger. These investors subsidize the underwriting fees and massive compensation of the sponsor by having their shares of ownership, their share of ownership of the target company post-merger severely diluted. Dilution occurs 
when shareholder equity or ownership percentage is decreased through the issuance or creation of new shares. Dilution in SPACs are a massive hidden expense that should never be ignored by investors. The success of SPAC deals and the compensation of the sponsor count on a group of investors being indifferent or just not understanding how dilution works. There are three sources of dilution that SPAC shareholders face post-merger. The sponsor promote, underwriting fees, and the exercising of outstanding warrants. So the sponsors promote is easy to understand. They are given essentially free shares that add no additional cash to the SPAC trust. So the promote shares naturally dilute the SPAC investor's ownership percentage in the post-merger company. Less obvious is how underwriting fees for the SPAC IPO dilute SPAC investors. Like any traditional IPO, a SPAC sponsor hires an underwriter to take the shell company public to raise assets. The standard underwriting fee for a SPAC IPO is around 5.5% of the total equity raised in the IPO. Around 3.5% of that fee is usually deferred and conditioned on a merger being completed. However, greater than 50% of SPAC shares are usually redeemed prior to a merger. And this makes sense because of what I told you, almost all the IPO shareholders either sell their shares in the open market or put them back to the SPAC prior to the merger. So all those shares that are put back prior to the merger are redemptions. And most SPAC deals have at least 50% of shares redeemed prior to any merger. So here's what happens with underwriting fees. The underwriting fee is not adjusted to take into account the share redemptions. And so the fee is still paid as a percentage of the total assets raised in the initial IPO. So if 50% of the SPAC shares redeem prior to the merger, then the effective fee calculated as a percentage of cash delivered to the merger target is 11%, not 5.5%. So an 11% underwriting fee. The ownership percentage that the SPAC investors will have post-merger, so the ownership that they'll have in the target company after the merger is a function of how much cash is delivered to purchase the shares of the target company. The target company does not foot the underwriting bill, but instead the SPAC shareholders do through a lower percentage of ownership of the target company. Now let's look at the final dilution source, rights and warrants. Now rights and warrants are clearly dilutive because if the share price of the post-merger company rises, the holders of the rights and warrants are likely to exercise their free option to buy discounted shares. New shares are then created and the SPAC shareholders are diluted. The dilution from rights and warrants can be severe and the extent to which SPAC holders can be diluted increases with pre-merger redemptions. Let's break this down. Initial investors 
in a SPAC, the IPO investors, receive a warrant with each share they purchase at the IPO. If 50% of these initial investors redeem their shares prior to the merger, they get to keep the warrants. After the merger, the original number of warrants are still outstanding. However, the number of units and therefore cash delivered in the merger has been cut in half, therefore doubling the dilutive effect on the remaining SPAC holders. The same study I referenced earlier found that total costs for the median SPAC transaction between January of 2019 and June of 2020 that is passed on to SPAC shareholders that held their shares through the merger was a breathtaking 50.4%. If we're being honest, what other result should we expect from an investment structure that is billed by Wall Street as democratizing private equity? SPACs are the typical big finance shell game where huge financial windfalls can be made, but not without a sucker. My advice, don't be the sucker. As promised, SPACs are incredibly complicated. I hope you took a lot away from the presentation today, but if you were interested in SPACs, and especially if you are considering investing in a SPAC, I would highly recommend that you read the study that I referenced several times. The study is called A Sober Look at SPACs, and it's by Michael Klausner of Stanford Law School and Michael Orog of New York University Law School. I will put a link in the show notes to this study, but their quantitative analysis of SPAC transactions over a year period is absolutely fantastic. So I, it's very much worth your time if this is something of interest to you. And that is a wrap for this quarter. Thank you so much for joining me. If you want to view our video series called The Five Secrets of High Performance Investing, then you can find it on our website at threesummit.com forward slash secrets. Also, if you find our investing insights helpful and you've gained something from our podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. That helps us out a lot. And as always, I love hearing from our listeners. So please do not hesitate to contact me directly if you want to talk about investing or any other financial topic that is important to you. Take care, and I look forward to next quarter.